Well, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. Yeah, thank you so much. And as you are turning in your Bibles, um, we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as we started the Advent season this week, um, Pastor Jalisa, who's home not feeling well today, uh, she said, you know, this current series is kind of making the um, planning of Advent a little challenging. And I said, oh, how so? And she said, well, you know, the sermons coming up are on murder, divorce, <laughs> oaths. Um, and anyway, and I was like, hmm. And I thought about it a minute, and I said, well, isn't it actually quite perfect um, that in the, this Advent is a season where we remember with all the Christians um, back to Jesus. We remember the darkness of this season and the time when we were awaiting the Messiah to come and rescue and deliver us. And so um, it is a little strange combination, but hey, this is what God has us in. And so um, thanks be to God. As we get ready to read, we're going to start with Matthew um, 5.17. But before we do, I want to pray and ask the Lord to just open our eyes and our hearts. So would you pray with me, please? Lord, your word is alive and active. You say it will not return void. God, um, your word is like a sharp two-edged sword. And Lord, um, we pray today that you would wield your sword, that you would fight off any resistance in us that perhaps wants to rebel against your word. And Lord, I pray that as we listen to what you have for us in this passage of scripture, that you would speak in really meaningful, personal ways to us. And Lord, that um, you would cause our hearts to be soft and um, our wills eager to do your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. All right, so um, we're going to start, and I'm going to read 17 to 20, and then take a little break and make a few comments, and then um, read the next section through 26. So after I finish the first part and start to share some comments, don't close your Bibles, okay? Keep them open. All right, um, so Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want to make a few comments about this passage of scripture. Um, and I think I've told you before that in seminary, they sometimes taught us the meaning is in the structure. 
And so reader alert, there's a structure here that we want to pay attention to for a minute. So if you have um, Matthew 5.17, and then um, we're going to look at Matthew 7.12. Okay, so those two passages of Scripture, I'm going to read them one right after the other. So 5.17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then 7.12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, For this sums up the law and the prophets. So if I had a highlighter, I would highlight in 17, I'd I'd highlight law or the prophets. And then in 712, I would highlight law and the prophets because it's repeating a phrase. And when you see a repeated phrase, something at the beginning of a chunk and something at the end, that is called an inclusio. Can you say that? Inclusio? Inclusio. So it's a repeating words or phrases, and it acts like a bracket or like a highlighter to say this is important and to get your attention. And so it can alert the reader to a particularly important theme, or it can show how that the material in between relates to the part that's at the beginning and the end. And so as we think about what is the important theme that this inclusio, this structure that the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to use, um, it's alerting us to this, that the main teaching part of the Sermon on the Mount, which we're just getting into after the Beatitudes, now we're starting to get into the meat of the sermon after all those blessings. And um, he wants to teach us about the law and prophets and that Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets, not to abolish them. Can you say not? Not. So if somebody asks you, are the Ten Commandments meant for us to follow today, based on Jesus' own words, you can answer yes. These are pertinent today. All of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, are pertinent today. All right, now... I talked to you about the beginning and the end of that inclusio. Now, if I had my highlighter in my Bible, which I probably should have made a slide for this, but all right, so I'm highlighting that law and prophets. I'm highlighting the law and prophets. And then in my Bible, I mark it all up. But I would draw a bracket, like a long line in the margin, all the way down. And everything in the middle has something to do with this at the end. And so what do we think that this might be everything in the middle between these two brackets. It's having to do with the law and prophets. And I, as I reflected on this, I think we find the answer to that in 712, where it says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So do to others what you would have them to do. Treat others with love as you would have them treat you with love. And we're going to see this in the next several sermons, starting today with the topic of murder. The spirit of the law is love, and a restored humanity is going to embody love. And so over these next several weeks, we're going to look at how maybe there was some misunderstanding about the law and prophets and the real purpose of those. Well, now, how did all these Jewish people that were there on the mountain with Jesus not know this? 
Well, there was a big problem. And the big problem was this, that the law given by God was a moral guideline for how they were to live their lives. And it was misinterpreted and misapplied by the Pharisees and the teachers. And so it caused the people to miss the big idea, which was that this is a rule of life about a life of love. And instead, they made it about a bunch of rules. And so the Pharisees took this and made a religion of a bunch of rules. And um, before I go any further, I just want to say there's a lot of people with teaching gifts in this church. And um, so I want to just point out how important it is that we don't make the same mistakes that the Pharisees did. And so God helping us, we need to ask help us to interpret this scripture accurately and not misrepresent any part, not even the tiniest little piece of your word. All right. So the law was intended to point out the standard of love that humanity was to live by. And um, as I said before, the Pharisees made it into a religion of works. And that was going to be the way that you established your righteousness, your right standing before God. They thought was if you obeyed all the rules and laws correctly. And um, they did so much as to add a bunch of extra things in, um, trying to fence it more and more so that you wouldn't um, break one of the laws. All right. So God gave the law to show us a way of living in love. And he also gave the law to show us our complete inability to live in the way of love because of the problem of sinful nature, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our rebelliousness towards him. And so through the giving of the commands and the Levitical law, um, he gave a process, a picture that repeated itself regularly about the costliness of sin. An animal had to die. Blood had to be shed over and over and over to remind them the costliness of sin. And it really foreshadowed Jesus. It was a picture foreshadowing Jesus who would come and be that most costly sacrifice. His holiness, him who lived completely and is love, would lay down his life to cover our sin and to give us his spirit so that we could, again, have the option to not keep sinning, but to be obedient. All right? Is that making sense? So Jesus comes and he embodies the spirit of the law, which is love. Now, after we're Christians, as I said, the commands are still pertinent. And it's not pertinent from the standpoint of I have to go and live by this legalistic list of rules. But actually, it's like, how do I live like Jesus? How did my father really design us to live? And so we go back to this this um, list of commands to see what his intent was from the beginning. And so it's for learning the heart of God and so that our conduct and our sanctification will become more and more complete as we live his way. It's not earning righteousness for us. God puts Christ's righteousness, he counts his righteousness as ours. Total free gift, all right? So I don't want you to be confused about that. It's just showing us how to live as God's children. Got it? 
All right, let's resume our reading. And um, remember that this topic of murder is one of those commands that were misrepresented by the Pharisees and the teachers. And so listen to what Jesus teaches, starting with verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I just want to say that that word Raka can mean, like, uh, you might say blockhead, you know, or um, I don't want to use the stupid word, but... Um, you know, something like that. And it was really the tone of voice. Uh, you know, raha, you know, it's kind of like you, whatever, you know, if your parent used a word in that grunt, um, you get it. It was kind of the sound that just really put you down as much as the word itself. And um, so anyway, so if we say one of those mean things in our anger, um, it is punishable. You risk the danger of the fire of hell, it says. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore, he goes ahead and he gives us two examples. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And then verse 25, the second example, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. All right. So. This is the portion of scripture that I want to spend a little bit more time on because I think um, it's culturally more relatable and unfortunately it's personally more relatable. And um, I want to talk about Jesus' teaching and what we just read that 100% of us in this room are guilty of breaking the command that God gave Moses on the mountain when he said, you shall not murder. Let's look at a few examples of this. None of these are anybody in this room. All right, but it could apply. God has a way of doing that sometimes. When Julie was little, her sibling thought it was funny to tell her friends that she still wet the bed. Julie was humiliated and furious, and she stewed about it for months. She wished something awful would happen to her brother to pay him back for how embarrassed she was, and she really wished that he'd fall down the steps and break his arm. Another example. When John was in middle school, he was bullied big time. He was smaller than most of the kids in his grade, and he didn't speak English very well. 
Every day, John dreaded walking down the hall after lunch. The gang of kids would push and mock John and make fun of his family name. The words and the pushes hurt, but he believed what they were telling him. He turned the lingering anger inward and begins to hate himself and his parents who brought him to this country. Another example. You watch the other driver in the side view mirror. It isn't a good day anyway, but you drive this route every day, and today is a bad day. And so you're not having any of it. You're seeing that this truck is coming up, and you're thinking, no way. You are not merging in. And so those thoughts start to boil over, and pretty soon they're becoming words, and you're yelling. And then pretty soon after the yelling, you're blowing your horn, and you're driving aggressively. You're over. You are not staying in one lane, and you're not over in that merge lane. You're trying to straddle the middle and like, no, get out of here. You are not passing me. And so then after that, then as soon as the traffic lightens up a little bit, you are driving so aggressively. You've risked that person's life and your own. You were enraged. Okay, another example. You knew that the surgery had possible side effects, but you didn't think it would be that bad. You didn't think it would happen to you. Your life has been changed forever, and someone is going to pay. You speak poorly of the surgeon and the hospital everywhere you go. You talk to an attorney who specializes in malpractice lawsuits. And when you enter the courtroom, the level of hatred and disgust you feel is overwhelming. You're seething. You can't wait to get up on that stand and rip that doctor to shreds. You want him to pay big time. These are a few examples. We could give many, many more. Why is anger so serious? Well, it's serious because Jesus says it's subject to punishment. In verse 22, he said, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, the Pharisees had taught that murder was wrong. So if you take the life of somebody, it was punishable. But what they didn't do is they didn't broaden it anymore. And so they said, probably everything up to killing them is probably okay. And so here we have a culture that everything up to the actual act of taking somebody's life is all right. And so you've got a culture filled with rage. And people didn't know any better. And so Jesus is actually saying um, that... Those who commit the act of murder and those who have murderous intentions and anger in their hearts, they're both in danger of judgment. So the expressed or the smoldering, you know, bubbling up anger that just smolders and flows over with lava sometimes, um, sometimes that passive aggressiveness in somebody, um, he's saying, This is not representing my kingdom of love. When you act this way, this is not love. And so there were two words that were used for anger in the Greek. 
One was thumos, which was a quick burst of temper, and then it will subside, but kind of an explosive loss of cool that might be violent. The other is orgidzo, and that was a deep-seated animosity that seethes and simmers. It's a long-lived anger over which a person broods and nurses and will not let it die. This is the anger that we fan continually, and we keep it smoldering and burning until it's a raging fire of bitterness and resentment. We devote our energy to keeping active that anger and keeping it intense. If it starts to slow down a little bit, you just think again about what they did, and it gets you right back stirred up again. All right? You can probably feel this one in your gut. Um, It's this latter anger that Jesus has in mind when he says, even if you're angry, you're you're guilty, and um, it's punishable. So, Pastor Kevin DeYoung says that we have a murder problem, even if we're 100%, you know, technically murder-free. We didn't actually kill somebody, but we all have it. And he pointed to a book by David Paulson, Good and Angry, and it has a chapter that was titled, Do You Have an Anger Problem? And it was quite clever. The chapter only had one word in it, yes. You know, you might actually sit and spend more time thinking about that chapter because it was just straight up, gave you the answer, and gave you something to think about. Okay, and so we have anger problem. And if we don't get it under control, it's in danger of hell. And I think that raises a theological dilemma for us, all right? And so what we want to say about that is that Jesus was talking to a group who were following him and believed him already. They were starting to believe him. But then there were others that were just curious and were just kind of listening in. Today, we have people who have committed their lives to Christ who have received the righteousness of Christ, who stand in front of God with their sins covered, past, present, and future. And so we don't have to worry about hell if you are following Jesus. But if you've never placed your faith in Jesus and received his righteousness, then you are actually just from this anger. One sin is punishable. For all eternity, separated from God. So it's really something to think about. And it's really something to be thankful for, what God's done for us through Jesus. All right. Now, as he shows on the Sermon on the Mount, that sixth commandment um, doesn't just prohibit the act of murdering, but all violent emotions and violent intentions of your heart. And so we can... um, really need to give consideration of this, not for just us, but also to think about this. Our brothers and our sisters and our mothers and our siblings and our children, we all have a murder problem. We all have hearts that can go to that place of deep, explosive anger. And so Jesus gives two illustrations, one about the temple and one about going to court. And neither one of them is about our own anger. 
It's about somebody else's. And Jesus says that the anger is so serious that we should do not only what we can to eliminate anger in our own hearts, but we should prevent and alleviate it in other people's hearts. And it was at this point in the study where I got stuck. And I, I don't know that I've ever told you in 10 years I got stuck. Um, but I had questions, and I kind of wanted to argue um, with this. I see things very black and white, and I'm a concrete thinker, and I also like to do things the right way. And um, in both scenarios, I question, why was Jesus teaching it this way? Why was he saying that? And so let me just read these again and tell you what my arguments were, because maybe you have these same objections. Um, And so let me tell you, because let me tell you where I'm going to end. Jesus is right. Okay. All right. So that's before you worry about what I'm getting ready to say. All right. Um, So verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And maybe you can imagine that I was arguing from Matthew 18:15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And so isn't it the the person that's supposed to go is the upset person to initiate the conversation. In my mind, that was the argument that I was having with Jesus. Like, why is it that if I'm giving a gift and worshiping the Lord, that, and I remember somebody's mad at me, that I have to go, you know? And so that, that's where I got stuck, honestly, for a bit. Now then, this next one, 25... Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Well, when Jesus teaches in parables, you can't get into all the nitpicky details, or you'll kind of get lost in it. But the main idea is if your adversary is taking you to court, you should settle. That's the main idea of that story. And again, I'm arguing with the Lord like, but if you're innocent and you settle, then isn't that admitting that you're guilty? You know, why would you settle? Why wouldn't you want to just have it like laid out that you're innocent? And so um, it was really hard for me to think about preaching this to you because I was having these, uh, these angst. <laughs> and, um, and then I remembered that what was that whole inclusio about? The spirit of the law is love. And so Jesus' teaching is perfect. He's the one who will judge. He's the one who will know that we were right or wrong. We don't have to worry about that judgment. What we do need to pay attention to is what does love look like. And he's telling us this is what love looks like. And so I finally came around that the most important thing is not proving our innocence or being right, but it's loving that other person enough 
to not want them to risk facing judgment because of their anger and that you go over and you try to be reconciled right away. You go and do what you can to make peace and help them diffuse that anger. The top priority is helping them resolve their anger and to be reconciled. And so if we're here in the church service, now, you know, we read this and go, okay, yeah, yeah. If we're here worshiping and singing a song and all of a sudden you remember that your brother is um, angry with you, like your biological brother, what does this say to do? Goodbye. You're dismissed. You're dismissed. You have a pass. Go. (laughs) Because Jesus just sent you on a mission to go be reconciled. Um, Literally. Prompt obedience. All right? And if we're being taken to court, Jesus advises settling the matter quickly. And the reason he does that is because if you go through a court hearing and he said and they said and you go back and forth, by the end of that, no matter what the outcome is, the chance of your reconciliation after going through that process is pretty much nil to nothing. And if love and reconciliation is what Jesus wants, then it would be better to be wronged because Jesus in the end is going to make it right. All right? Anybody taking this to heart? Are you? Yeah. Okay, a few ideas that might help us. I happened to catch part of a podcast that Dane was listening to yesterday. It was by David Brooks entitled... How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Known. And he was sharing a few suggestions, and I thought, based on what he was saying and also what another author had written that I was thinking about, I thought this could be helpful, just a few ideas of how to handle it if um, you're struggling with anger towards someone or if somebody's struggling with anger towards you. And the first thing I want to encourage you to do is stop and pray. Before you start to try to talk, stop and pray. And it's very helpful if you're angry with somebody to go ahead and forgive them so that you're talking from a position of forgiveness rather than um, holding on to that anger while you're trying to talk it out. All right? So then after you've prayed with the Lord's help, here's these things. The first one is see deeply. Ask open-ended questions and attempt to really know the person. And as they're talking, when they're finished, say, can you say more about that or tell me more? And he said that when somebody's upset, oftentimes it takes like the third or fourth layer before you really get down to the core issue. Maybe some of you have had this even in parenting. What's wrong? You know, and it takes a while before you get to what's really going on. And so... See the person deeply. Look in their eyes. Listen. And the second point is listen loud. And I thought this was kind of interesting. He said, when you're encountering a difficult conversation or seeking to know a person, he suggested active listening accompanied by what he called Pentecostal-type verbal encouragements. All right? So, um, you know, you throw in, like, when they say something, wow, well, now... Say it again. Wow. 
Oh, I'm getting what you're throwing down. All right then, yes. Now, if that sounds like too much for you, that's okay. But what he said it does is that if you're speaking and you're actively like nodding and your body language is saying, I'm with you, the person realizes they're being really listened to and they'll keep going and you'll get to know them better. Another thing that's maybe not verbal, but something that I found helpful is to take notes when I'm listening and asking questions. And then after I take my notes and I've listened, I'll reflect back and say, this is what I think I heard you saying. Did I get it right? Because I want them to know I really want to understand what the problem is. What is the issue? So see deeply, listen loud, and then Danny Silk, he's a Christian author, and he has a book by the name Keep Your Love On, that title. And he encourages us not to shut down our hearts toward the person that we're in conflict with. And so you may want to call to mind while you're sitting in the same room, maybe across the table or across the room, um, that this is one of God's dearly loved children that you're looking at. That person is made in the image of God, no matter whether you're angry with them or they're angry with you. It's helpful to remember the value of each person. Because remembering this, that First Peter 4, 8 says, love covers over a multitude of sins. And so Jesus teaches us a more full understanding of the command, do not murder. And he says, do not become angry. Go be reconciled. Jesus is revealing the intent of the command given so long ago on that mountain with Moses. And as we celebrated last week with communion, we remembered the hill of Golgotha and how Jesus laid his life down, modeling for us perfect kingdom love that chooses reconciliation over anger. Jesus saw deeply into the people that were there. He listened loud. He listened to the mocking. And then he says, Father, forgive them. And he keeps his love on eternally. And by his Holy Spirit, he enables us to also follow his example of love. And so thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, You are so good, and your values are so notably different from our broken culture. Lord, I ask that we would honor your values, that we would obey your word. Lord, I ask that our lives would look very countercultural as we choose to forgive and pursue reconciliation. Lord, as we choose to not vent and not go into road rage. Lord, as we choose to, even if the other person doesn't have it all right or see it all right, Lord, help us to to just go listen, to apologize every way that we can apologize, to try to make amends. Lord, we pray that we would be marked as a people that do not murder by action, or by our thoughts, or by our emotions, but that we would be marked as those that embody your love. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.